Hello everyone, this is Brandnoto, and this will be the second part of our palliative care discussion with Dr. Jess McFarlane. If you missed the first part, you should go and check it out because this is going to jump right in where we left off. So enjoy. All right, so we've talked to the family, and the, the wife has sort of come to this decision that she agrees with her kids, that he would not want to continue like this, and they want to they talk about comfort measures. Kind of walk us through, what do you, how do you handle that? How do you handle comfort measures? What does that look like to you? What do you do? What do you not do? Yeah, so I, um, I, ask, I first start asking families, tell me what you, what's important to you during this period of life. And oftentimes, mostly it's families want to ensure that their loved one's comfortable. Oftentimes they want to be there during the entire time, but sometimes they don't want to be. Um, and then I'll ask, is it okay if I tell you a little bit about what to expect during during the dying time? And I call it the dying time. That's my colloquialism. People can use different things. And oftentimes families say yes. So I try to prepare them as best I can so that they're not worried about their loved one if they see symptoms of in, at the end of life, such as um you know, difficulty with controlling secretions or just a, a cough at the end of life because of um, secretions that are on the vocal cord. So I really take them through what to expect from how we're going to make sure their loved one's comfortable, removing the breathing tube, giving them permission to stay at the bedside if they want to during that time. Oftentimes families, um, you mentioned Brian, that she was worried about seeing him struggle at the end of life. Sometimes families are worried about the opposite, that they will give the patient too much medication at the end of life. So I, I address that as well. I talk about how the symptoms that I look for are things like respiratory rate or wrinkling in the forehead, brown, you know, sort of grimacing, that our nurses are really, really great at taking care of all of those symptoms. But I try to prep them for those things ahead of time so that that period can be focused on um, their time as a family together. Um, I try to make certain as well, are there, are there spiritual needs that need to be addressed as well? So oftentimes when we're having this conversation, um, our chaplains are, are there as well. Um, okay, so they've decided they want to they pursue comfort measures. They would like to take him off the ventilator. Um, so walk us through from a, from a provider standpoint, what, what are your go-to medications for comfort? What are your, how do you handle um, a, a palliative extubation? Uh, how do you handle the next X number of hours? Um, you know, do you do you consult palliative care? Do you t consult the hospice team? Do you transfer the patient out of the ICU? How do you handle all that? Oh, so for it depends on the patient because somebody dying from a respiratory illness is really different from somebody dying from a neurologic illness. So for this particular case, and it also depends on location, right? We're lucky inpatient hospice team. At our, at our university. So I think for this particular patient, for patients with a neurologic illness, they tend to have a prognosis of hours to days, not minutes to hours. So that's the first thing I think about is, do I expect when the breathing tube is removed for prognosis to be minutes to hours, hours to days, days to weeks? And in this particular patient, I would say likely hours to days. And that helps me think about, will they stay here in the unit? Will they transition to the floor or might they be eligible for 
um, hospice care at the end of life if they're symptomatic. So that's kind of my first decision. Then my second decision is what symptoms do I expect this patient to have? So for patients with a neurologic injury, I think they're probably going to have a problem with secretion. So I start something like glycopyrrolate prior to removing the breathing tube. I make certain we've stopped fluids and we've stopped um, feeds. And that's something that I'll have addressed with the family already is why do we stop feeds at the end of life because of the complications that can occur. But all have already talked to that. And then I think through, do I expect this patient to have pain or dyspnea? I don't expect them to have pain. I might expect them to have dyspnea. Sometimes I'll have the respiratory therapist um, put somebody on pressure support if they're not already on pressure support, just to get an idea of how tachypnic will that person be. And if I don't think he's going to have dyspnea, I may not use an opioid except for PRN. I don't automatically use an opioid at the end of life um, for patients with a neurologic illness if they've not given me signs that they'll need it. But I make sure the nurses have it if they need it um, with a with a with a frequent bolus. So that, um, so that they can treat symptoms if they need it. If it's someone that has a concomitant respiratory problem or I think they've got a brain injury that's gonna cause them to be tachypnic, then I may use an opioid um, infusion plus a bolus to maybe, you know, if they're opioid naive, I'd start with morphine to an hour and a two milligram bolus every 15 minutes for a respiratory rate of greater than 24. But I give the nurses really, really good instructions um, and guidelines so that they don't feel like they're the ones delivering too much medication without some without some clear guide. So in this case, this gentleman, we would talk about extubating him and keeping him in the ICU. Um, how bad do you need a bed, Brian? No, I'm teasing. So if I think time is going to be really short, meaning minutes to hours, and that family has a relationship with the nurses. I would probably try to leave that patient in the ICU just for sort of comfort for the family. But if I think it's going to be longer than hours, then, and I have an inpatient hospice team and he's symptomatic, I would try to go over to the inpatient hospice. Now, remember to, to meet criteria for inpatient hospice, you have to be symptomatic. So it's not just that you're dying with a short prognosis. You also have to be symptomatic to meet criteria for inpatient hospice. If someone's dying pretty comfortably with not a lot of meds, I would transfer them to a floor team that can take care of them because we do need to be mindful of resources as well. Now, just on the topic of meds, you mentioned morphine. Uh, is there a reason that morphine is usually favored in the palliative care world? And I ask because I rarely use morphine otherwise in the ICU. I'll more often use fentanyl or hydromorphone. Uh, but it does seem like morphine is still kind of the drug of choice for palliative care. And I don't know if that's just for historical reasons or if there's a specific reason why it's preferred. The house line. Um, yeah, no, I, I think probably at the end of life for dyspnea management and for pain, all of the op opioids are equally as good. You know, we typically are kind of living in a fentanyl shortage. And some floors are not able to manage fentanyl infusion. So I, I tend to stay away from fentanyl at the end of life. Now, if somebody's been comfortable on it and I expect time to be really short, you could maybe continue it. If someone has renal disease, I don't use morphine at the end of life. I'd use hydromorphone um, because certainly you can develop myoclonus with increasing doses of morphine if you have like a acute kidney injury or chronic renal disease. And I, I don't want to see that, but it's, it's, um, 
more, it's more just my generic opioid of choice that I use if I'm happy to use IV opioids. I tailor it to the patient. And at this point, would you generally stop feeding patients? Uh, you mean like if they're if they're eating? You mean if they're if they're having like two feeds being given? Well, either way, whether they're eating or you're giving two feeds, or perhaps they're eating but they're not doing well with it, they're aspirating, for instance. Ooh, good question. So I always the way that I do it is I always stop tube feeds. And now I say always, there's no always, right? For some families, a barrier is they just can't get comfortable with the idea of not feeding someone. And that's okay. And we talk about how will we know when it's time to stop feed? So what would it look like to have a complication from from um, maybe like NG tube feeds? Because there are complications that can occur. There can be you know, I don't want to have somebody in restraints at the end of life just to give food through a Dobhop tube. I don't want to cause volume overload or aspiration if, if Dobhop tube feeds are, are causing that. But if it's not really causing a problem and the family is really worried about it, I might make a decision just to continue feeds. For all patients, regardless, at, at the end of life, I always have an order that says, please offer food and drink for comfort. Um, because what I don't want to have happen is someone who you know, doesn't, no longer wants artificial feeds, but may be able to take great pleasure from a sip of ice cream. Or a, a, my favorite is to take like um, coffee that's not too hot and put it on a sponge for someone that the family told me like, hey, I know they love coffee and just sort of offer that to the patient. And that's part of that um, anticipatory guidance that I give families when I'm talking about what to expect is that we're always gonna offer food and drink the patient may not take it because during during your dying time, you may not be hungry, you may not have thirst, um, but we always offer it. Um, and that can be really comforting for families because I also teach them how to use swabs and how to offer food and drink to patients. Um, and sometimes families will say, oh, but the team's told us like it's an aspiration risk. And I'm like, it is, you know, it, it, it might be an aspiration risk, but if it's just a silent cough or the patient seems to take pleasure from that, that's okay. We're in a different place now. I'm not too worried about the aspiration. I mean, the patient who's going to live for weeks or months, can hunger introduce its own distressing symptom? I think what we know about the dying process is that appetite tends to decrease and the body's need for calories tend to decrease. So people may not experience hunger in the same way that they would if they were healthy and not taking in food. And if patients can't communicate with me anymore, it's really hard for me to assess whether someone's hungry, which is why offering food and drink, I think, is really important to do during that time of life. I've had, I have a patient right now that I think about that it's a little distressful for me because he's, um, he has a, a lung cancer complicated by a stroke that's left him with really bad dysphagia. And for the life of him, he does not want a feeding tube. But he's got a prognosis of like weeks to months, and I so badly want him to have a feeding tube because I'm like, man, you would like you'd probably enjoy this time more. But he's like, I don't want it. I like he just does not want it. There's something about it, so it's causing me more distress than it's causing him. But he's the boss. So let's talk a little bit real quick about just some sort of what I have found to be sort of common problems, I guess, that come up in this, uh, and sort of how to deal with them. And the first couple are, are questions that I get not infrequently from families that are kind of tough to answer sometimes um, from a, a standpoint of how do you answer to the family without sounding sort of cold and calculating, I guess. 
and, and one of them that comes up frequently is there's nothing more we can do because your loved one would not would likely not survive the surgery that he needs to fix whatever the problem is. Right. And, and I feel like surgeons say that all the time to folks. And then what I, the question I get from the family is, well, if he's going to for, for sure die without the surgery and he's going to likely die with the surgery, why not just do the surgery and take the chance? Yeah. I hate that question. <laughs> Here we go. Yeah. <laughs> um, do you think there's a difference? I'm curious about this because you work with, you both of y'all work with surgeons so closely. Do you think there's a difference in the way, in experience, and the way surgeons answer that, meaning do you think a more experienced surgeon has a different way of explaining that to families than maybe a, someone who's still in training? I honestly don't. I don't know that there's that I've seen a huge difference. I think they still sort of say, um, you know, we there is a surgery, but it's not going to go well. He's likely not to kind of survive it and he'll die in the operating room. Yeah, so they're not offering it. Yeah, so we're not. Yeah, so basically, we're not going to do it. Um, I don't know, Brandon. What's your experience with that? I think, however they phrase it, what it ultimately comes down to is that they don't want to be the one to kill the patient, and that feels different to them than if the patient dies uh, from their disease. And on some level, that may seem wrong because either way, they're dying. But um, I think it's understandable, and it's a situation we're not often in as non-surgeons because while you might offer a treatment and there's a bad outcome, it never feels quite as visceral as if you took somebody to the operating room and cut into them and they died there. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And, and I don't want to, I don't want to, I don't want to answer for surgeons, but I suspect it gets back to the how hard it is to break bad news and that none of us really get trained well in how to do that. Because I, I think they have certainly taken a really thoughtful amount of time to think about, will this patient, can I save this patient's life? And are there risks greater than benefits? And I do, I've certainly heard families say like, well, just do it. They're going to die anyway. So I think it's a matter of making sure that, that we train people to sort of say, I wish this surgery would make your loved one better, but it won't. So we're not going to do it because my hunch is that that's what they're really trying to say, but it's, comes out differently and what families then hear is they're going to die if I do this so then I'm not going to do it and um, I think how we deliver that news from the get-go is important so if if that family then came to me and asked me like why won't they do it I don't understand I would confirm with the surgeon that what you really meant to tell the family is this isn't going to help them it won't save their life is that correct and then if I get that confirmation that would be the news that I deliver to the family is, is what they really meant was they can't do this surgery because it's not going to help. And then, and then be able to respond to the emotions that, that follow that. Right. Cause that's terrible news because you've really sort of in a way broken bad news to the family that their loved one's likely going to die. So having a skill set to respond to emotions through, you know, naming the emotion talking about how terrible this must feel. You can't imagine what they're going through is really important in this situation. And I've always wondered if with experience, do people get better at delivering that news, which is why I asked the question about, you know, do you think it matters training and experience or practice? I think I mean, from a, putting myself in the surgeon's position, I think there's plenty of good reasons not to do the operation, right? Uh, like you said, like Brandon said, there's that feeling almost of culpability, right? That I'm going to actively cause this person's death. 
Um, but, you know, in addition, I mean, just from a practical resource situation, right? Um, you know, you're, you're tying up an operating room, you're using supplies, you're uh, exposing the operating room team to a stressful situation that's likely to end badly. Um, you know, I know one thing that I, one thing I really like about our nephrologists um, is that they will often just not offer dialysis to people who will die without it because they know it won't make a difference. Uh, and I think that's the same thing, right? You're tying up a dialysis machine, you're tying up a nurse, you're tying up the time and the resources. Uh, I guess my issue with it is always how do you say that uh, to a patient without making it sound like it's cold numbers and dollars and cents, you know? Because I don't want to say to a patient, well, we could, um, but it's really not worth it because the odds of them surviving are so low, it would be a lot of resources spent for no good reason, which sounds awful. Right. And the truth is, though, if we if we had an unlimited amount of resources, we still wouldn't offer that. Right. Because it's not going to work. Right. So I, I like the way you say that. So I think that's the thing. I think that's the thing to keep in mind is that sometimes at the end of the day, if we're saying no to a to a medical person, to a medical procedure, it's because it won't work because we're not obligated to provide care that's not going to work. Um, so I, I like to use I wish statements in those situations, say, I wish dialysis would save this person's life, period, end of sentence. I don't then keep explaining why it won't because that's when we get into trouble is when we talk about, you know, but this and this and the creatinine and it's going to take this and, and then we start talking data, which can confuse things. So making an I wish statement can be really helpful because it's both empathic and clear. One of the other statements that I hear come up a lot, uh, especially I, I think, Jess, where you and I practice in the South, this may be more common than other places, but I hear a lot of, you know, patient is in a very tragic situation with virtually zero chance of recovery. And the family just shuts down. They won't even talk about it because they keep saying X number of people are praying and God's going to work a miracle. Um, and as a person who uh, believes in God myself, um, I don't know how to respond to that without feeling like I'm either A, denouncing my own faith, um, or B, denouncing their, right? Because I sit there and go, I mean, in my heart of hearts, I believe what you're saying, that God could do that. But I also the other half of my brain that has seen this scenario play out countless times, and God doesn't do that play the odds right so how do you handle that sort of because I, I, I always joke kind of half joke with the nurses you know when once you bring jesus into it it's me versus jesus and jesus is going to win every time <laughs> yeah. um, how do you how do you sort of deal with that just digging in and saying a miracle is going to happen not we're hopeful not we're praying yeah. but it is we believe 100 percent. i think one powerful aligning statement can be i'm hopeful for a miracle too and I like that because it, it acknowledges that we're in miracle territory now. There's not much I can do to help this, to help make this better, right? If, if we're in miracle territory, that's me kind of saying, is that in my league? Um, and then I follow that up with, is it possible to think about what might happen if the miracle we get isn't what we're hoping for? Um, another question you could ask is, tell me what a miracle would look like. And that sort of sometimes allows family space to sort of both, just like you said, it's 
if, if you start thinking a miracle won't happen, then you can get into some really um, spiritual distressing situations for families that have such faith that this is going to happen. So supporting that miracle can be really powerful because it lets them know they've been heard and that you're hoping for that too. And that allows you, Brian, as sort of the person taking care of them to acknowledge your own faith, if, if that's important to you. But it also then takes it a next step further and gives them permission and space to think about what if they did get a bad outcome. And that can sort of then maybe lead you to more conversations about the what if. That's good. I like that. Um, yeah, I used to have a friend who would say, what we're looking at right now, this is not a miracle, right? This is me and machines. And if I can keep them alive, that's not a miracle. Um, so I like what you said about we're, we're in, in the miracle territory, uh, right? Simply just doing nothing is not God working a miracle. That's modern technology. Um, and so I like that to sort of define, well, what do you, what is a miracle? What do you think, what are you hoping for? And and sort of acknowledging that we're hoping for the same yeah, thing. Yeah. And I think too, sometimes, sometimes people will surprise us, right? The miracle not may not be that they get back to the way they were the day before this happened. The miracle might be that I hope that we're alive in three days. So my sons can get here to say goodbye, or I hope that they're comfortable no matter what. So I think we, because it is out of our comfort zone to start to talk about miracles, we get a little nervous too. So allowing families time to explore and really uh, tell me more, you know, question is, is important in those situations. Brandon, do you, do you, you're in New England, is that right? Uh, yeah, up in Connecticut now. Oh, you're in Connecticut. Is that count as New England? Uh, yeah, I think we're still part of the club. <laughs> do you find Miracle Talk there as well? Uh, we do. And of course I can't compare. I've never worked in the South. I wonder if it's less from a religious perspective because it's true I I do hear that but not all the time but I feel like there's probably the same amount of uh, for lack of a better word uh, denial you know families still want to just hold on to some sort of hope and without a religious basis for it it's just hope for its own sake and I wonder if that is exacerbated because it's difficult to tell anyone there is zero chance of a better outcome because who am I to say that there is absolutely no chance in any universe that a month from now, this comatose patient is not going to wake up a little bit more. <laughs> right. And so because I have a hard time saying that just for kind of epistemic reasons, um, you know, whatever fragment of a hope that's there gives them something to hold on to. That's why those ICH scores, that 97% always sort of makes me giggle because, um, you know, like I said, I don't use that necessarily as the only point of data, but I'm like, man, somebody's got to be 3%. Right, and that's what families are thinking. My loved one is going to be that 3%. Going along what you just said about, um, you know, one more day, one more week, one more month, I had a nurse that I worked with one time whose husband died of esophageal cancer, and we were talking one night about esophageal cancer patients and how they're very, very sick. And if you've never taken care of one, uh, especially, you know, back several years ago, um, esophagectomy was a very low likelihood of success type of surgery. And, you know, the, one of the nurses said, I don't understand why, why do it? Why do you keep, why do you keep doing it? Why do you keep putting your families through this and stuff? And she said, for me, it's because 
for the rest of your life, you will always be asking, what if? What if we had done that one more thing? What if we had done that one more day? What if we'd given them one more week? How do you handle that question? I think it's similar to the, we just want them to get better questions. So the question I would ask is, tell me what getting better looks like, or tell me what success looks like in this situation, because then it gives me a target to see if we're getting closer to that target or further away from that target. But if I know what they're hoping for, then that gives me a clear picture of what to, what to recommend. I, I ultimately, I think it's a very difficult, if not impossible question to answer, right? At what point do you make a decision? You know, today's the day, right? What, but what if tomorrow, what if tomorrow we could do that forever? Yeah. Um, so. Right. And I think, I think time limited trials are really, really important. And we've got to be honest as the, as the care team about what does success look like? Like we, I think sometimes you said this at the beginning, Brian, when you were talking about kind of understanding what are our goals and are we meeting those goals? And if we're not meeting those goals, how do we pivot? And I think having in our, in our own armament, what signs of success are and what signs of not being successful can be helpful. And we have to know that as the care team so we can communicate it to the family. Well, we're getting uh, kind of close to the end of our time here, but I want to ask one more thing. I, t- I told you at the beginning we would bring COVID back into this at some point. Um, I know we at our hospital and a lot of hospitals around the country have very strict no visitation rules right now because of all this. How has that impacted palliative care discussions and palliative care and end-of-life care uh, in your practice? So one of the things we did early on is we explored how can we bring families to patients through telehealth. So iPads, the equivalent version for non-Apple-based users, we're trying to make sure we get our hands on as many of those as possible so that we can do face-to-face visits, even if it's during technology. So I think that's been really important. We do have an exception to the rule at our hospital that if it is end of life or end of life decisions are being made, a patient can have a visitor during that time. And I think that's important because, man, if you're talking life or death decisions, sometimes families need to be able to lay eyes on their loved ones to understand where we are. And the other thing that I'm trying to encourage people to realize is that I think there's a lot of distress right now with COVID that people are, are dying alone or being alone. But man, we, are, we work in a healthcare system with really great nurses and techs and chaplains and doctors and you know the whole EBS services. So I think that making sure that we realize we are providing comfort to these families too, even if they can't be there and reassuring them that we're taking care of their loved ones, even if physically they can't be right there beside them so that we don't be, we don't, so that we can sort of see our own skill and take away some of that moral distress um, by recognizing the, the good work that we're all doing too. That's great. I, um, I keep thinking, one of the things that's getting me through this whole pandemic thing is the thought of all of the things that are going to come out at the end uh, on the other end of this that are going to be better uh, because basically we've been forced to do something that maybe we didn't have the will to try before. And I think telehealth is something that is really going to be going to be potentially big. 
Um, and I'm hopeful that we can continue to do that. You know, I, I think we all have the story of the family, right, who is waiting on the son to come in from the other side of the country who's having to make flight arrangements and stuff like that um, and, and may not make it here on time. And I think telehealth is potentially um, something that could be very helpful with that, even, even when we're back to, quote, normal. Yeah, I feel like every Super Bowl, there's some tech company that has a commercial where, you know, their loved ones are very far apart in two stressful situations, but they use that technology to bring them together. And it's always very heartwarming. Um, so I think in the time of a crisis, it's, we forget that those heartwarming moments can still exist. Well, is there anything else that you would like to add before we close out? What, would you, what do you want every ICU practitioner to know about palliative care in the ICU? So I think the thing I would want everybody to know is the difference between primary palliative care and subspecialist palliative care. So I think if you're going to work in an ICU, you have to have really good palliative care skills, primary palliative care skills. So if you can find a course or um, do some, some, get some education on breaking bad news, and doing um, goals and values sort of discussions in order to make recommendations, that's so important. And I think it relieves a lot of that moral distress we come home with every once in a while. So I think getting those communication skills down would be my big shout out. And then if you find yourself with a curveball or not sure or stuck, calling a palliative care consult early to help have those conversations can be really, really helpful. And that's a great way if you do call a palliative care um, consult to do the family meeting with the palliative care team, because that's how we learn. That's how we get better. It's just like before we do a central line, right? Somebody has, so we have to watch somebody, somebody has to watch us and then we're allowed to do it on our own. The exact same thing for family meeting. Yeah, that's great. And, and that's how I've learned um, is by spending time with, um, our palliative care to you and uh, the rest of our palliative care team at UK. We will we'll provide some links in the show notes to some of those uh, some of those courses that people can find more information on that. So thanks once again to Dr. McFarland for joining us, um, and we'll see you next time.